Hi, everyone. Welcome to Kip Nugget, a podcast sponsored by Tuck Bar and Yoga, the premier boutique bar and yoga studio in Philadelphia area, currently closed due to COVID. My name is Hagana. I'm one of your co-hosts, and I'm here with my wife, Callie, uh, my other co-host, co-host. Hi, everybody. Callie, what did you want to talk about today? Um, okay, let's think what we want to talk about. I want to talk about small business. So Hagana and I own a small business. Um, we own a um, a string of bar and yoga studios in Philadelphia. We're also, we also work full-time. So we're both full-time lawyers. Um, well, Hagana's not really a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. He works in law while technically a lawyer, but he doesn't practice. And we own these businesses on the side. So I think we're in this unique position where we get to see sort of corporate America's response to COVID and big businesses' response to COVID versus, you know, a small local business's um, experience with COVID. So, Hagana, how do you feel about owning a small business today? What, I mean, just, let's just talk. Like, how do you feel? Almost every day, I'm relieved that this is not my only source of income and that I didn't <laughs> give up my day job. Yeah. Uh, we were actually clo- I was close to giving up my day job yeah, earlier this were. year. You, you were. Know, in January, literally a month or two before COVID, yeah. we were about to open our fifth location. It was becoming a little bit hard to manage on the side, as, yeah. you know, in addition to our full-time jobs. Yeah. But yeah, other than the relief that I didn't quit my job and, you know, manage the small businesses full-time, it's been... I feel like there's a lot of shock, right? It's, yeah. I feel like we're all kind of in shock because I feel like this we, yeah, is it five all, months now. No, it's six. <laughs> six months now. It's six. I six mean, we're now. we're it's almost the end of August. I mean, it, we're we're in this, and I think that's how I feel. I, I um, I second everything that you said thus far. I certainly feel happy to have a job. I feel fortunate to have a day job that can support us, and um. But I'm also, I also feel the magnitude of the weight of this problem. If we were just running tux, we would be, I mean, we would be done. Financially, we would be done. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's been really, really um, surprising and a bit actually very sad is Business owners who rely on their small business for their only source of income, they've been put in an impossible situation where they can't, they can't make, they can't both make a good health decision and a good business decision right. because those things are in conflict. Right. Like for us, like let's put that in real terms. For us, it comes down to do we open and risk our teachers getting COVID or exposing their families to COVID? And we have some older teachers we have some teachers with pre-existing conditions we have teachers who are trying to get pregnant um do we risk them and our clients with the same kinds of issues and say oh yeah it's safe we're six feet apart breathing heavily in an enclosed space or do we continue to carry 20k a month and and hope we can get through this I mean, that's that's the calculation we're making on a daily basis. Give people, you know, open up, give uh, essentially let people take the chance that mm-hmm. they could get sick or our teachers could get sick or lose the business. I mean, because we're now coming on seven months into this crisis. We've been closed this entire time. Philadelphia says we can open right now, but with social distancing guidelines in place, you all have to understand this isn't as simple as innovate 
oh, the people who innovate are going to win this. That's, that's not how this works. Innovation requires capital. And that's something seven months into this crisis that small businesses don't have. You can't just say, oh, we're going to increase our ventilation system so we can open for five people in a class. That's tens of thousands of dollars. I remember when we were building out West Philly, what did we pay just for the HVAC? Like we, the landlord actually had subsidized a lot of the build out and we just had to cover like essentially turning on the HVAC and it was like $15,000. You know, we got multiple quotes. It was such a small task, but it, it, so it's not as simple as just innovate. You need capital to do that. You also need to have the the ability to do that. Do you have a space where you can, you know, or can you build a new website? Like there's all sorts of things that come into this calculation. That yeah, not to mention, like, okay, what you just said, the calculation, right? Right. I mean, if you're going to make a business decision, there has to be an ROI on the other side of it. And, you know, can you really spend 20, 50, 100, 200? And make you it know, back. Depending on the size of your space. And make That's it why back. so many people have already decided to, to cut close. their losses. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, think that, I think that that's the that's a real takeaway here is that there are people who, I mean, in, in our say, in our case, the smart business decision would be to close. Oh, like, absolutely. If we're just looking at the math, the smart decision is to close right now. And the earlier you close, the, the earlier smarter you, close, you were. The, yeah. The earlier you, you close, the smarter you mm -hmm. are because you just cut your losses. And in all honesty, this is going to go on until next year, end of next year, possibly. Um, so you cut your losses, you get out now. For most small business owners, what they're doing right now is slowing the bleeding. So they're still going to die. It's just going to be a much slower death because ultimately what we have, we have a significant amount of costs and losses from this whole coronavirus, right? Someone has to absorb those costs. And right now, since we haven't had a government response that's been continued and coordinated and insurance companies are also not absorbing those costs. Like for example, Hagan and I, for our businesses, we have business interruption insurance. That business interruption insurance is supposed to cover us in the event that our business has to be closed for a period of time. Um, well, there's some policy language that excludes, let's not get into the, the nitty gritty, but basically insurance, some let's insurance. Let's just say it's making its way through the court system. Yeah, it's, there's speak. litigation involving the, um, the business interruption claims. But these costs aren't just going to go, like they're not just going to go away. We've essentially lost our economy for six months, seven months. And if the government's not absorbing that cost, if, i.e. taxpayers are not absorbing that cost, if insurance companies are not absorbing that cost, ultimately the burden of those costs falls on small business owners like and This us. isn't just a small business problem. This is, uh, I mean, it's even worse in the residential area, right? I mean, when, when people cannot pay their rents yeah. and people are talking about a rent strike and, and you know, justifiably so, like how are you supposed to make rent with no income coming in? Right. Um, okay, let's say we do that. With let's millions say, of yeah, jobs Yeah, let's say lost. we pause rent. But then you're just transferring that burden onto uh, landlords. Right. And landlords, for the most part, they have borrowed 
all of those properties. Right, Most leveraged. vast majority of properties are yeah. mortgaged, which means if you then try to provide them relief, then it just shifts to the banks right. who are, you know, financing those right. so, properties. So, so again, like the cost absorption has to happen. And the way it's happened in other countries, like for example, New Zealand, I think most people look at New Zealand and they see a country um, that has dealt with a coronavirus well, and they literally... When this happened, they sent everybody 7500 bucks, and they said, stay home. Don't work. We're paying you not to work. So they made that decision very quickly as to who was going to absorb the cost, and it was the government, i.e. taxpayers. We're going to subsidize your economic activity so you can stay home and we don't have 170,000 deaths. Whereas in America, we did not have that swift kind of decision making, and we've let... We've kind of taken all these half measures. It's really the worst of both worlds, it's right? The, because it, it was a compromised position, right? And uh, you know, so right now in Philadelphia, there's talk of restaurant indoor, restaurant dining, uh, dining starting coming September first. And the only thing that's kind of still to be de- determined is the percentage of capacity that they're going to allow. It's going right. to be either twenty five percent, twenty five percent, fifty percent. I, on Facebook, I see our good friends Mallory and Kamara talking about this, and they're just like, "What? That makes no sense." What's right. It? Because first of all, you know, if you have a, if you have a sm- truly small restaurant, let's say you have a twenty-four seats, right, and then you cut that down to six, six? to twelve, you're not breaking even. And not only that, that includes employees. Right. So right. you can have a staff of what three or four to maybe serve six more. Right. Right. And that. and and I think that's the. I think again, like this is amplifying and and growing these costs because like even for us if we were to open which we can now do we're not hitting our break-even point we'd still be operating at a loss we're slowing the bleeding but we're not actually surviving we will still die it will just take longer and the same with restaurants right like they're not hitting their break-even point and they're actually probably spending more on cleaning expenses. It's going to be more expensive to stay open and operate in this limited capacity than just to close um, or stay closed. Because at least if you just stay closed, you just have rent, insurance, you know, it's your fixed costs, whatever your fixed costs are. Once you start to open as a restaurant and you have to manage food inventory and hope for six people or 10 people or however many people to come in, you're paying employees, you're paying, you know, for food expense, your variable costs are going up and you still have those fixed costs that, so it just doesn't make sense to open. But like you feel this pressure to stay relevant. So you feel like, oh shit, I'll operate at a loss and stay relevant. I'll stay in people's minds. Um, It's just an impossible it's again, like you said, it's the worst of all worlds. We've prolonged this whole response. We've done all of the things halfway, just enough so that it really sucks for all of us, but it doesn't address the real issue. Doesn't and it? Doesn't actually save the economy, right? It, no, the economy is not saved. The economy. I think we will feel this. I think we will have. Um, I think we will have long lingering effects of this whole outbreak because again we have not decided who is going to absorb these costs it's kind of half a little taxpayers but a lot of ppp forgivable loans went to much larger larger businesses small businesses are 40 percent of our working population you know it's not the huge airlines and again not that i think that that's a, a misstep i think that absolutely if we want to have airlines 
you know, we, we needed to do what we did. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, they did what they could. The PPP right. was designed so that the, the majority of it, first 75%, and then it was lowered to 60%. So at least over half has to go to employee payroll. Right. So that's keeping, you know, people on the payrolls. Going. It's keeping people off of the unemployment rosters. Yeah. And, and, and that's, I mean, that's a fundamental question of do we want to give do we believe in companies doing the right thing and keeping people on their payrolls um, so that they don't collect unemployment? So do we give them money or do we just pay unemployment and give people money when they're laid off? Um, Honestly, I felt like, I felt like we were a lot closer to a solution back in April or May when things were really, really shut down. Right. I mean, we literally did not leave our house for three, four, five weeks, got everything delivered. Um, They sent the stimulus checks and for a moment, I was a little bit optimistic. I was like, okay, they're sending some money, enough so that people can stay home for a few weeks. Right. If if literally everyone just avoided contact for 14 days, this thing would be over. Right. Or at least it, be it, in control. Yeah, and again, provided we had testing, tracing, sure. all those other... Things that we didn't. But... But yeah, I, I feel like there's a lot more hope back then there is now. No, right now, I right now it's it's been so blundered that um, I feel hopeless and I feel... Again, like when looking at this from a purely economic perspective and ignoring the sunk cost of like how much time and effort we've put into our small businesses. Because for those of you who know Tuck, you know that like Haganah, it's just us. Like it's our personality. We like, you know, we've created this really great community where people feel empowered and it's just a positive thing. It's a very positive thing. Ignoring all of that, we close tomorrow. If I was just looking at this through an economic lens, you close tomorrow. Yeah, it's really our emotional connection to it. It that's is. Keeping it is. Here, that's the it? only yeah. thing that's keeping us here. Um, because the smart thing would be to get rid of rent obligations and start online. You know, we have a community. Or bankruptcy. Or wait for this thing to actually right. be over and in then two re- years. And then and restart. And then start in 2022. But, but I, think, I think that's assuming that consumer behavior will not have changed. And I think that... We can't make that assumption right now. Even for me, I love fitness, right? I, I like I like working out. I like going to group classes. I love going to different studios. Um, and for me, I'm now in my routine. My full-time job is now work from home for the foreseeable future. I don't see myself going back to an in-person class. Okay, let's talk about possible solutions. Like you said, someone has to absorb these costs. Yeah. Uh, what are what are the options at least? I mean, I think the options are the government absorbs it, taxpayers absorb it, but they do it all in. We need like, and now that it's gone on so long. So what do you mean? You mean freeze rents, freeze mortgages? Literally abatement for rents, for mortgages. Um, because that takes the, I don't think our landlords are bad people. They don't have money either. Like you said, they're leveraged. Their rent rolls are down. So- one of our commercial landlords said we were one of two um, commercial tenants out of hundreds still paying rent. And then another one of our landlords, 97% of their business is college housing. So they're just they done. Could be worse off than yeah, they they're are. just done. I mean, yeah, they're probably looking at bankruptcy faster than we are. And that's a public company. I mean, right. that's a huge, huge corporation. Right. So, so, yeah, I think you look at it in terms of government really shouldering the expense. Um, and that's not that's not a pretty number, right? We essentially have lost a year of of economic activity. And what's our GDP? Thirteen know. trillion or something? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a s h i t ton of money. Um, so that's not pretty. 
or you have insurance shoulder this, you know, insurance companies shoulder this. Every small business owner I know has business interruption insurance, but I don't but, see. Okay. But in that case, do you, you have to follow the policies though, right? You have to so follow the policies. So there are some that have force majeure clauses right. for at least stuff like this. Right. Um, you're, you're going to see. So that, that's not really a total solution. It's for the ones who got good policies from solvent insurance companies that but, can afford if, to pay out. Right. But if you're, if you're thinking about, if you're thinking about the way risk has been allocated and the, and ultimately we want business owners who are savvy, who are, you know, who read their policies and who were thoughtful in what they were buying. And I know this is a stupid thing to have to differentiate businesses on because ultimately it's such a legalese kind of, uh, kind of um, answer, but you ultimately it's a way, it's a way of filtering, right? Like those business owners who got policies, who paid more in premium should be covered in the situation. They're going to survive. The people who didn't aren't going to survive. Um, that would be a really kind of not the outcome we may want, but that is a fair way to do it in that the people who read their policies paid more in premium for those clauses and to not include those exclusions, they're going to survive. Other people don't. That just solves the small business problem though, right? Right. That doesn't really solve the, the residential rent. It doesn't solve. Uh, no. I mean, again, we've lost. The costs are enormous. We've lost six months of economic activity. And so you have, you, we're going to have a housing crisis. We're going to have a commercial um, property crisis. We're, we're going to have, I mean, we already, in America, we already have insane amounts of poverty. What, what, what were we uh, reading the other day that said like 40% of workers don't make $15 an hour? No, I don't remember. I, I think you, you told me about it. I didn't read it. Okay, don't quote me on this, but I believe I read an article the other day that 40% of Americans don't make $15 an hour. That's not a livable wage. If 40% of our working population is not making $15 an hour, how are they going to be the ones that absorb these costs, right? Like, so, so, and maybe it's a hybrid of all of those things. Maybe the insurance companies cover those folks that they should be covering already, but they're hiding behind. Essentially, it, they use denial letters as a deterrent, right? It's the savvy business owners who say, wait, I can sue them for this. Um, I'm, I've read my policy. I know what it says. I'm going to sue. And we see that right now. So maybe it's half that. Maybe it's half government supported. Can, maybe can insurance companies, I mean, I have no idea how many of these policies are out there. Can they even pay these all of these claims? Or is it more like hurricane insurance where they oh, all go belly oh. up and then? I mean, again, like when you look at underwriting, if the if there are these exclusions in the policies. No, no, I mean I mean the policies that right, actually would pay. Right, out. so so they, that risk has supposedly been priced into the premium so in theory yes but i don't think that I mean, do you really I think, think underwriters were thinking of yeah this, this like scale? black swan kind of event no um but so again, then you have the I same problem where the insurance companies are going to be like wait it makes no, more sense for us to to, to, to declare corporate yeah. bankruptcy yeah um take yeah. care of our shareholders yeah or I, think, share, debt holders. I, I i mean i would assume there's reinsurance for those purposes like there's insurance for the insurance so i would assume that the risk would be spread out 
But again, like this is just like back in 2007, 2008. We have this black swan event, this unthinkable thing happens. The risk is allocated and spread among so many different private parties we're not privy to, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I'm an insurance lawyer. I don't know how reinsurance contracts work. I don't know how, if there's regulations that require that you maintain a certain level of capital, I'm assuming there are those regulations, but, but again, like in this sort of environment where the claims could be $13 trillion or whatever, um, yeah. I, I don't know. It could be that insurance companies go under. But again, that's, I think, why we're shuffling. We're slowly coming to terms with the fact that there has to be some kind of taxpayer-funded absorption of these costs um, because there's no other real way around it. Granted, yeah, I so, don't, I don't so know. A taxpayer know. bailout of businesses, lenders, homeowners, I mean, all these I, people. I don't, what did Europe do? Like, like in the, I, I know that, was but, but it not Italy? Just that, but they then, pa- they, and, they literally abated all rent payments, all mortgage payments. So everybody was off the hook. Right, but I don't understand what that means really. What I don't does that know mean? what that <laughs> means either. I mean, I guess it means they're like, maybe the government is guaranteeing those loans for those mortgages in the end, but do you really want that? I don't know how that works. I don't know how it works. But that's it. That is... So that cost, and then we would also have to pay everyone to stay home for at least a month, I would think. Yes, and like actually, and actually stay home unless you're a non-essential business, and then on a national level, everybody stays, everybody stays home, um, and then just actually go through the pain of getting through this, and then it can be over. But again, even if it's over, even if it's over, even if we contain the virus and we social distance, we have tracing, testing, we're still going to have outbreaks. So it's not like we can just go back to going to bars, taking fitness classes. We're still going to have to have everything scaled back. And instead of operating at 100%, everybody's operating at 30%. So there's still going to be these these costs. So I did actually read a very optimistic article in in the Atlantic the other day. I think some either company or university in Boston has figured out 15-minute paper strip testing. Yeah, so that's a big deal. Yeah. Like immediate testing, because then you can properly trace. No, that's great. So, okay, so the solution is not pretty. It's absolutely no, not pretty. No, the solution is not pretty, but the but, current okay, but, existing but I want to talk about the alternative. Yeah, so let us, let's say we do nothing, because that's probably what's... That's we're doing probably, nothing now. Yeah, it's probably Congress isn't even do. in session. No, and they're probably not they going to do on, anything. They went, to, they went in recess, and now they're like talking about potentially doing something. They're not. And I don't really see that changing no matter who wins the presidency. I, I, I kind of feel like, well, we know what Trump would do, which is probably nothing because he's done nothing so far. Right. Well, um, he's, he's left it up to governors. He's left and, it up to governors. And they're just, just doing such an a, awful job. I yeah, mean, they're doing, I mean, you need a national, res- coordinated national response to mm-hmm. this. That is the only way to, to lessen this pain. Biden, I feel like maybe would manage the crisis a little bit better, but I also, I still don't see the new, a new administration actually doing what we talked about, freezing everything, paying everyone to stay well, home, yeah, shutting need, it all you down. You need a Congress. To, you, need, you need legislation. And we have a – we can't pass legislation to save our life on anything. So what I'm getting at is we're most likely not going to do anything. What does, I didn't mean for that, for that to mean what it meant. We can't pass legislation to save our life. It's really literal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we 
had many chances and yeah, we still haven't. We still have. So, okay, we were most likely going to do nothing. What does that look like in six months? In, let's say, March like, I, it 2021. Gives me, it, gives, it, makes my, it makes me nauseous. I just saw this morning that uh, vacancy rates in Manhattan are the highest they've been in 13 years. So yeah. Manhattan I mean, is dying. I mean, we're, we're going to have... Uh, the, the the recession slash depression we will have after this if this goes on for another year which it will if, assuming we do nothing um i think that it fundamentally changes how we live in america i think that we will see more poverty i think that we will see more food insecurity i mean we already have all of those things but even on a grander scale um and again we're going to have a housing crisis i think commercial commercial real estate is over like how many offices are going back right like why would you continue if you're if you're a large corporation why would you continue to have offices in manhattan if everybody's working remotely why would you continue to have offices period subsidize home internet and be done with it it's it's silly you're paying you're paying money to for commercial real estate you're paying the just the utility costs like something, it's it's an absurd number, but most of our energy goes to um, heating and cooling office buildings in America. It's like a crazy number. I don't I don't want to say what the number is because mm -hmm. I won't be right. But I remember reading the statistic and being like, "What?" Um, okay, I don't want to be all doom and gloom, even though it clearly is. Um, and I yeah. want to talk a little bit more about <laughs> solutions. Okay. Let's say okay, maybe what ma okay, maybe the most the most pressing issue is housing, right? Yeah. So people who all these people that have lost their jobs, the quick solution is um, what is it called? Eviction freezes, right? Eviction moratorium. Yeah, right. eviction moratorium. Which we have. Let's say nationwide, we could do that. Okay, then but we have... The, but the moratorium doesn't mean the eviction goes away. It's just deferring the eviction to a later date. Right, and but I let's think say that's, even, Okay, but I again, that, but let's the, just get to next year. No, but this is a, such an important distinction that I think people don't really fully um, recognize. Like, even for us as small business owners, a lot of our landlords have been telling us... Because, again, we have these costs floating around. Someone has to absorb them, Right. The landlord doesn't want to absorb these costs, so they offer us, hey, you don't pay your rent right now. We'll give you a rent deferral so you can pay your rent after this is all over. But then you come out of this. Again, we're, we would have to absorb the cost at the end of this with a huge bill because we owe back rent for nine months. And and so just like with the with what that proposition means to us, it's just delaying the inevitable. That's what... People, you know, people who are um, renting their homes, that's what they're being offered right now. There's an eviction moratorium, which is just a deferment. It just means your eviction is delayed. As soon as that moratorium is lifted, you will be evicted. So Yeah, I understand it. But let's, again, let's just get to next year. Let's just, okay. how do we get to next year? 12 I'm very now, doom and gloom today. Without people literally losing the roof over their heads. Right. Okay, fine. A year, two years from now, right. they so have $30,000 or $10,000 in rent due, but... Let's at least keep them at in their homes. At least they're in their homes. Okay, so until... eviction moratorium for however long this lasts. Yeah. Now you have to then take care of the landlords, often who are leveraged, right? Right. Because, I mean, they could literally be homeless and they could be in default, right, uh, of their mortgages. Right. Well, they're not going to be homeless. They're gonna they're gonna be in default and then they would lose the property. Okay. So let's say they lose the property. That and means the bank they owns lose it. out, and then the bank owns it. So how do you solve that problem? 
I, again, like, do you what shore up the lenders? No, I think what so we, they can what absorb we said, yeah, what we said earlier, there would have to be some sort of hybrid solution where you're offering, you know, mortgage relief to those commercial or to those property owners while also somehow ensuring that the lenders are made whole. So, you know, maybe some sort of government guarantee on the, on the mortgages. I mean, we do that we've nationalized mortgages in the past. Um, so maybe something like that. I'm just throwing out ideas. I don't know. What do you think? Why am I the one answering? You answer your yeah, own question. Hey, I'd love to question. ask the question. I, I do have another question though. This is, I'm almost, I'm laughing at myself already. Oh my what do you think is the free market solution to this? Oh my God. <laughs> there, there is no free market solution to this. If we left this to the free market, we would leave it. We would ultimately have those who have a lot of capital right now, the Jeff Bezos of the world, coming in and making a, a killing off of people who are struggling and in pain, right? Like, let's say- So if we truly do nothing, a true free market, no intervention- A true, a true free market, rich actually, people are know, always going to take advantage of poor right. people. Like, that's how you get payday loans. That's how you get, you know- usury that's how you get like all of these things that we've decided are not in our society's best interest we would have that so and, and, and those have... institutions we know because everyone's been calling this next recession right even though stock market is still at near all-time highs the stock market for three nice. four five years now the stock market is not a reflection of our economy period i understand that no but, but let's let's dial that well, back well, let's that can, can be we dial that we back can talk that, we can talk about that in another no, episode but, uh, but the top 10 percent of our population, economic terms, owns 95% of our 92%. stock market. 92% of our stock market. That's not a general reflection of our economy. The top 10% is not the right. general but, reflection. But, okay, but slow down. I didn't even get to the point okay. of what I was saying, which is that- And I say that as a person who- Once again. <laughs> okay, go. This okay, the point I was trying to get way. to FYI. was that because all the financial, whatever, you know, smart people were calling this next recession, oh, we're going to have a recession, cash reserves are at an all-time high. Yeah. Berkshire Hathaway has record cash. Apple has record cash. I mean, I mean, Apple, they're a computer company, but if, if I was Apple, <laughs> I saw all of a sudden I saw all this, right. you know, you, dis- you know, all these distressed assets hit the market. There's, yeah, you, there's, you going know, to be, there's going to be a lot of so consolidation. So the free market yeah. solution, which, which would, would mean... Literally, the the ten percent that owns ninety two percent of the stock market wealth could then just come in and buy everything. Yeah, there's going to be a massive consolidation, and then just re-rent to everyone, right? right. <laughs> Rent your house back to you, right? Probably at a lower rate, but you don't own anything. Your equity's equity's wiped out, right? And and I think and I think that's what we're going to see in fitness. Like we're going to see the small businesses. I mean, we've already seen how many studios have closed. Small businesses in Philadelphia. Like w- w- I can count them. Um, and I know, and I know others have not paid rent, and so they will also be done in a few months. Um, but you're going to see the fitness companies that are backed by private equity, by um, you know larger companies. The the big chains are going to come in. They're going to consolidate. They're going to be the last one standing because, again, capital isn't something that small business owners have. Like the American dream, if you think about it is that you can not have a million dollars in the bank and you can go rent a little shop on Main Street, live above it, and have, you know, walk downstairs and open your shop for the day and make a living. Um, Is that actually reality? No, but that's the dream, right? And so 
so not having that million dollars of of liquid cash is going to crush a lot of small businesses. Yeah, it's interesting that consolidation. I actually read that this is sort of happening in the restaurant world already because yeah. the DoorDash. I mean, who's yeah. been okay? There have been a couple of winners in in the recession, in the Corona recession, right? Yeah. Amazon has been a huge winner. Delivery companies, yep. um, food delivery apps, right? DoorDash, Uber, uh, or online fitness, online Peloton. fitness, yeah, Peloton, right? So there are some winners in this yeah. um, that are experiencing something of a windfall. But you know, DoorDash, Uber, all those places, Caviar, I think a lot of them have now merged. They take thirty percent of restaurant revenues. And on Facebook, for some reason, I think Facebook thinks I'm also like a restaurant owner because I get a lot of like <laughs> restaurant like ads clearly Please meant for don't restaurant ever owners. Tell no, me you want to open I'm a restaurant? Absolutely not. I would, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, now the new thing is ghost kitchens where you don't open an actual yeah. restaurant. You open just a commercial kitchen that has all the licenses and, and whatever. Then, and then you just sell food to the delivery apps and yeah. that's the whole model. And that's basically a corporate, a corporatization of restaurants. Restaurants, Yeah. Which is, that's crazy. I didn't know ghost kitchens were a thing. Yeah. So you just rent commercial space and then you work with Grubhub. Yeah. And maybe we should do a ghost fitness studio where all these studio professionals can just come in and tape their classes there and have a ghost gym now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we already have that. Yeah. Like, I guess they're well, using their homes. Does, yeah. yeah. They're using their homes. Like all of our teachers that are teaching online or for tech online, they're teaching in the, out of their living rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, like video quality doesn't matter. People have gotten accustomed to even turning on the news and seeing people sitting in their desks on their, you know, with their, homes in the background it's very disarming i kind of like the work from home environment i think it like makes people um more accessible do you think there's a a bright side possible to all this okay let's say this no intervention everything's wiped out is there gonna be like a new wave of home entrepreneurs like like you said yeah the barriers to entry to fitness online are online low. fitness are yeah. as, as low as I they've ever that, been i think that for in fact we get flooded with spam from companies oh. that are like do you want to take your fitness classes online yeah. <laughs> you know all the, yeah, they no, all want to cut that spam um, um no i mean historically it historically fitness instructors have not had a lot of leverage right when you just look at when you look at the power dynamics between a studio a studio owner and a fitness instructor. Typically fitness instructors are paid per class as independent contractors and they have to hustle to make a living. It's not as if you become a fitness instructor to get rich, right? You have to like really love it. And I, when I first got out of college, um, I was making $27,000 a year salary working at a, a gym um, where I met Hakana, actually. I was working from 6 a.m. until 10 p.m. every single day, like every day, um, and making $27,000 a year. Like What that's, year was this? This was 2000, context. 2007, 2008. Okay. So, not that long ago. Yeah, it was not that long ago. It's not and, like 1970. Right, not like, <laughs> if I was making $27,000 in 1970, I'd be pretty wealthy today. But um, So you don't go into you know, fitness to be rich, but I will. And which is why I got out of fitness ultimately because of that power dynamic and that leverage. Well, it sounds like you kind of got back in. I'm back in now, but I'm still out. Like I still don't rely on it for my primary source of income, but I will say that now because you don't need a studio, if you're a good teacher and you have a following, you can make a killing online. Like you can just have a zoom class or a Facebook live class. I mean, I remember in the early days of quarantine when we were doing free Facebook live classes and asking for Venmo donations, some of our instructors made a grand 
per class um, because, you know, they had 200, 300 people watching um, and they were good and people would give them 10 bucks or five bucks. So that was in March and April, though, before everyone lost their jobs. Yeah, that fell off a cliff. Yeah, it fell off, <laughs> fell off really fast. But um, but yeah, I do think that, you know, there will be sort of a reallocation of power in that sort of studio owner fitness instructor dynamic. And it's a necessary one because ultimately, and I think why Tuck is successful is we recognize talent and we always treat our teachers well because I came up in shitty places and I worked 80, 90 hours a week and made $27,000 a year. Um, but, but so I think we've always been very careful to treat people well and to not take advantage of people and to compensate people fairly. Um, you know, okay, continuing on this optimistic note, yeah, couldn't the same thing be true of talented chefs? If, oh, yeah. You, I mean, think of all the stuff that you have, you would have to go through to open a restaurant. But if oh. overhead's gone, if you can just rent commercial kitchen space. If you can just space, rent commercial kitchen space and not worry about the ambiance of the, right. you know, not spend a million dollars on the build out and worry about, oh, it's got to have pretty tile and all that you stuff. You can do a small menu, yeah. two or three things you do yeah, best. Yeah, but I still think that ultimately, like, you're relying on having an audience and if you haven't, for for people who are fitness instructors who haven't been in a studio to develop that following, they've got a big uphill battle, right? Like even for us, if we hadn't had the brick and mortars and developed our our audience, our community, it would be really hard to build it right now because there's so much competition. I think the same thing is true of chefs. If they worked at Zahav and they have this following already and that now they just kind of break away from Zahav and go into a commercial kitchen, yeah, get that windfall. But I think you had to have almost put in that work and had that quote-unquote following or audience um, because otherwise it, it's going to get really noisy in the space and you're not going to be able to, to build that. So I don't know. Okay, so mostly gloom and doom, but maybe maybe yeah, some this was a depressing one, but yeah. I feel good. I feel like I vented. This felt like therapy to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you everyone for joining us. Next time we'll talk oh, about. Oh, thank our sponsor. Oh, thank you, thank you to our sponsors, Tuck Barn Yoga, the premier boutique barn yoga studio in the Philadelphia area, currently closed <laughs> due to COVID nineteen. <laughs> thanks everyone. All right, for joining thanks us. everybody. Bye. <laughs>